You're listening to Death of the Reader Flex and Herds here, our second week discussing all the tears in China by Solari Gentil, dear friend of the show, who we were very delighted to have on, and Herds. We are discussing chapters 15 to 27 today. This is your last week to nail down what is happening for your points next week. (laughs) It's my last chance for greatness. This book, Herds, has just just gone from being fantastic to fantastica to fantasticist. Just the further we get in, I love the way that the action in this story happens because so much of the time this book feels kind of like the old original James Bond stories where we have just a small cast of characters, normally just Roland, just going around Shanghai, slow paces you know, letting things happen yeah. step by step. Very slow. But then when it kicks in, <laughs> boom! <laughs> <laughs> Doors explode, apparently. Yes. Yeah, I know. Oh, my That's God. Great. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying reading this novel. I want to say the door exploding is a great moment, but it's the scene that happens immediately afterwards is possibly my favorite scene with yeah. the, the Jewish-German doctor who patches up yep. Roland, and it is revealed that he has a, like, burnt scar in the shape of a swastika on his chest. It's insane. Yep. That entire scene is, like, like my mind was exploding. Um, I I love, I love what Slurry Gentle has done here. I love this historical aspects of this book Mm -hmm. and i love that we have uh even more suspects now you know that's also great you have said hertz you have said you expect that this book will at least follow a little bit of Knox. it's true so it it surely cannot be one of our new suspects i hope not uh that would be a problem for me i mean that would look that's just bad storytelling okay solari come on (laughs) if you're gonna rob rob points from me i'm just saying yeah personal (laughs) attack going on right there i'd I'd be in trouble have to lump you in with the sean britons of the world it's true it's true we are basically the same person let's be entirely real here i'll get him next time (laughs) so over the course of this series of chapters we go from finding out the the small little details that you know roland is being suspected by the police inspector randolph oh my goodness to then finding out that randolph has basically been going around the city slandering him and telling to the victim's brother mm-hmm. that, that Roland Sinclair did it, <laughs> it's like, resulting in Roland being clocked over the head with a violin. Oh, it's to so then good. The victim's brother's house exploding? Like, it's just, it's so frantic in summary, yeah. but the way that it is paced out in the actual book is so well-structured. I just love it. I, no, I, I love that so much. I don't think that it is going to be the policeman who is the killer. I don't think that that is a, a trope that's going to be employed in this book, but it's like it's, he's trying to get Roland killed at this point. Yep. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I really enjoy the way that the detective is played directly against the police in the story to the point that when Sinclair towards the latter half of this, this part of the story, uh, he, he comes up to, you know, the inspector Randolph. He says, ah, I found this evidence that I think might be correct. And the inspector's like, what do you mean you found evidence? He's like, well, I've been doing my own investigation. He's like, what do you mean you've been doing your own investigation? He's like, well, I, <laughs> yep. I, wanna, I want you to stop suspecting him. He's like, ah, uh, mm, <laughs> like, I, <laughs> the fact that these characters are so directly opposed is kind of refreshing. Yeah. I also like the way that Solari has written it in such that rather than being your standard amateur detective, where it is some 
someone who is just openly a detective. They're like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, I am an unpaid yeah. detective. Yeah, yeah. I operate outside the law and all that stuff. Whereas it feels very much like Roland Sinclair is the kind of character who's like, oh, no, I'm in trouble again. It's the politics. It's come back to bite me. Guess <laughs> yeah. I got to prove myself innocent again. I mean, he's he's just a regular guy, right? He's yeah. not even like, oh, no, I'm a washed up amateur detective. He's just a guy. Mm-hmm. And he has to rely on his own wits and the help of his, of his friends. His, his own wits and his extensive wealth. Yes, his ex- and his extensive wealth. Uh, th- those are all very helpful things. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, yeah, if he wasn't able to pay uh, his friends, you know, to help him out, especially his driver, mm-hmm. who knows where he'd be? I think it's particularly highlighted in the scene that we had where they go to Wings' debtor, and basically Roland's just like, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just send you a check, oh, so where good. Wings spent months trying to avoid them and hiding out and getting work to try pay it off, and Roland's just like, oh, don't, don't worry. I got you. Oh, even in the in, in the conversation with the the gang boss who says, you know, I can imagine him like smoking. He's like smoking opium. And he's like wreathed in all the smoke and like got his bodyguards. It's like a really intimidating scene. He says, you know, you will pay double the usual price. And everyone is like, oh no, does that mean he's going to take fingers? And they're like, no, no, that means you pay double the usual price. And he's like, oh, that's not so bad. I, I could, that's fine. That sounds very, oh, very scary, Mr. Gangboss, paying more capitalist yep. wealth that I have so little of. He, he go. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that entire exchange is so, as you see, it's like dry humor. It, it, really is something you could kind of seep in. The other thing that's excellent about this section of the book is actually starting to get into the whole wool trading business, which sounds, I appreciate, very very dry and boring. (laughs) But the way that it is used is really interesting where we start to look at the politics of it when Mr. Gilbert Carmel comes in and says, well, once your brothers sign that deal, everyone's going to sign the deal. And it's a very interesting look at how the Japanese were viewed at the time Uh in terms of the embargoes that were about to be imposed on them, but also all of the businesses that were trying to just reap that reap that money out of it while yep, they still yep, could. Before World War II hits. I love that we got this scene with all of these different nationalities in one room because we have the you know the Australian Roland Sinclair and the Japanese wool traders and this German man you know sits down and he's he's kind of like you know he's polite and Roland kind of goes along with it. But the second that uh, the the Heil Hitler comes out Roland's like, ah, this is a problem. <laughs> this is like, yep. I don't think I can work with Nazis. And the interpreters don't know German. So uh, Roland Sinclair says in German, so none of the, nobody else in the room knows what he's saying. He says, so where do your allegiances lie with the Nazis? And it's like a very, it's a very pointed question. Mm. And it really breaks the tension of that scene. Yeah, for sure. And there's also like this great, I think, sentiment that the book has where you know, we as the reader obviously know what the era was going to lead yeah, to. Yeah, for sure. And it feels like the book and the characters within do as well. Like, even though it has this, I guess, open-mindedness to how people felt about it, it's still presented in this way, a way like, this doesn't really, like, line up. And there's all of these sidelines, such as when, I believe it's Alistair, goes away and leaves a note <laughs> for Roland, basically saying, like, well, don't do anything stupid because there's something going on behind the scenes. There's there's always this under-the-table menace, which this book has that I really love. Alistair the Spy, I believe. Yeah. No, I loved that, that he's being told, you know, Roland, take it from the professionals. Don't do anything stupid. But, like, he's clearly already just by virtue of being in Shanghai involved in this mess. And it seems like everyone else is as well, to some degree or another, except for maybe Mickey with her her pet monkey. 
Um. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should talk about that. I think we should. She's actually first introduced to us in the newspaper clippings that are at the top of every chapter in this book. Yeah, well, this is this is the thing, isn't it? That it's I'm going to have a, a very interesting time looking into how much of this is real and how much of it is made up for the book. Um, because it's quite a lot, right? There's one at the yeah. start of every single chapter. There's a different newspaper clipping and there's all these characters who are real. Like that Buddhist monk is a real person and, and Mickey is a real person. Um, and the cafe is a real hotel. Like there's all sorts of details um, to, to kind of sift through. The other very interesting thing, Victor Sassoon is a character. He, I, I'm really not sure what to think of him in terms of the overall structure of the story. He doesn't do much. Yeah, he he's this very upper class a uh, well-to-do sir who owns the cafe hotel and he seems to have this very you know flatly laid out opinion that Roland Sinclair did not commit the crime even though we don't quite know why he believes that yeah. which is very suspicious eh. um but at the same time he doesn't seem to do a lot in the story his reputation in the story is wealthy man gives them house also might have monkey testicles. <laughs> That's like the three defining yeah. things we know about him from this story. And I'm curious as to whether we're going to get any more. Let's be clear. It's not monkey testicles. It's testicles with baboon meat slid inside of them. But Right. <laughs> Very important distinction. Look, I'm just making sure that we're 100% correct about how our baboon <laughs> testicles and how they work. But he's always there. He's always kind of representative of, I, I guess, like Western influence. And this, uh, this whole idea of just there's politics in Shanghai and I'm going to keep out of it. And I want you to stay as far away from me as possible, Mr. Murder Suspect. I just don't want to deal with it. That's very much the kind of the commentary that I see there. It's so strange. Anyhow, Herds, we should wrap this here and throw back over to the incredible Solari Gentil. This is Death of the Reader. We are discussing all the tears in China by Solari Gentil, and we'll be back with her in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you. We are talking Solari Gentil's All the Tears in China. On the line right now, we are joined by Solari for the second week here discussing this book. And last week, we finished off talking about the cultural influences that culminated in all of these spectacular characters like Mickey Han, who we were talking about earlier on this episode. And Herds, you wanted to ask a bit more about Du Yu Shang. Yeah, I think that in many ways, murder mystery is the what one of the best genres to explore a foreign country because murder mystery is so much about uncovering the truth and showing, you know, how this culture really is. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, Du Yu Shang, and I have, to, I have to take this up with you now, because our favorite murder mystery author, S.S. Van Dyne, warned <laughs> in his, I'm, I'm throwing a flex at you, warned in his uh, tenets of, of crime fiction that including a crime organization, Illuminati-style organization such as Du Yu Shang's, can undermine the pure intellect of crime fiction. Now, why, Solari, did you decide to ruin your book by including these things? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, because I didn't... I, well, 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 this one of the things I was adamant that I wouldn't do was write a book set in China and not include Chinese figures. Mm. So you know, the, the Roland Sinclair series um, takes a great deal of pleasure in pulling real characters from history into its vortex of each story. Du Yu Sheng communicates, I think, part of that culture that is that that I wanted people to understand. So he he is from an ancient tradition 
of warlords and respect. He was he used to he dress as a scholar, um, and I I did wanted to give give a sense of the fact that the Chinese in Shanghai also had their own structures and their own. Um, norms and their own ways of dealing with things, their own criminals and their own venerated people, their own religions. Um, and Du Yusheng gave us a glimpse of how that worked. And it would be cowardly to write a yeah. write a book that purported to be looking at the underworld of Shanghai without mentioning him. Yeah. Well- it's also a murder mystery book. Like it deals with crime inherently, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's you know what we see as crime and how we deal with crime is different in terms of culture. Mm. And so it would be like writing a, a book that was set in in Italy and purported to talk about crime and the underworld without any mention of the mafia. It, it would be something missing. But I also did, you know, I was I was also quite fascinated by. Du Yusheng's life and who he was as a person mm. and where he came from. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was one of the great things about Du Yusheng's first appearance is that it just kind of it took the scale from trade deal with Roland's brother to murder mystery to crime syndicate. And that was such a great step up on the kind of slowly progressing scale of issues that the novel was dealing with. And one thing we've been speaking on the show recently about is how to manage scale. And when you start dealing with big issues, how do you focus on the characters and the direct elements of the story? So how do you make sure that big scale issues don't end up just smothering the details of the story? Because big scale issues are expressed through human beings. I mean, the big scale issues always uh, sit over my books. So the, the books essentially are between the war books and they're looking at how we basically ended up in World War II. So you're talking about big scale issues, big scale movements, fascism, communism, big issues of where people stand. As, as much as the the book is about those big world global movements, it's where Roland stands in terms of those great big global movements that that is at play in often in the plots. I mean, sometimes it doesn't resolve. I think with this book in particular, Roland is asked by one of the characters what what makes him choose what's happening in Germany as his cause. You know, why is that more important to him than, say, the plight of the uh, indigenous people in his own country? In the end, in the face of all these big issues, you're looking at human and personal choices. Everybody chooses. They choose what cause they will fight for or what they will fight first for. You've, you've said that you write these novels kind of organically and that that, that question that, that Roland has of like, why do you fight for this or how do you fight for this is constantly challenged um, from book to book. You've written 10 of these novels so far and theoretically you could keep going to you know, 25 or 30 if you really wanted to. I wanted to to know though, our favorite character by far is is Wing Zhao. Um, we think that he's an excellent example of, of how to provide um, characterization, beautiful characterization without long walls of adjectives. Do, do you have certain methods that you like to stick with that help introduce characters like like Wing um, as an example? And the German doctor whose name escapes me as well stuck out, um, especially when you have so many books and you're trying to thread these kind of these moral questions in with each. Do you have any, any tricks for that? Quite often, I, the, the tricks that I see, I, I see in retrospect. 
Um, I'm not aware of it when I'm actually writing. So quite often, you know, a character comes in because they need a they need to fill a place in the narrative. So Wing Zhao was was necessary in this novel because Roland does not speak Cantonese or Mandarin. So if he was going to communicate in China uh, to Chinese people, he needed he needed a translator, and not just in terms of language, but in terms of knowing how the the society worked and it's it's you know it's a it's a shortcut method to bring in a character who can help your outsider character actually navigate because if you naturally in a novel allowed them to learn their way around a, a society well then they're that lends itself to a lot of boring passages. Yeah, one of the best moments for him in the book was just him looking out towards the sun as it was, you know, illuminating the apartment in gold and seeing him as an emotive character really just looking off into the distance. And I think that it's a great example of how that kind of juxtaposition between the very direct and purposeful use of him as a character compared to the kind of emotional core of him as a patriot, as an individual who's kind of been shoved to the side of society in many ways. It was just such a, a, a touching moment that really highlighted how well his character had been implemented to the story in that way. Well, I think um, Wing Zhao is, I mean, there's always certain peripheral characters that uh, that expand uh, mm. of their own accord. And it's hard to tell why they do that. Uh, it's It doesn't feel like it, it's, it's an intention on my part. It feels like they have a, a volition of their own. Yeah. So I have this vague theory that somewhere in my subconscious is someone is balancing all these things to make the story work, to, you know, to pull characters out into the fore and push other characters back to to keep the balance of the novel right. And whoever it is in my subconscious that's doing this doesn't bother to tell me about it. I'm not even aware of what the novel needs until it's filled. Wing challenges a lot of preconceptions about China, about education about their uh, this Chinese awareness and and also things like a, a political drive quite often when we when we're talking about other countries we don't really think of peripheral characters have, as having political drives and uh, and moral contemplations and moral um, uh, dilemmas of their own and wing allowed that wing came to the fourth to with his own uh, contradictory history you know he he was he was uh, a chinese man and a patriot and a communist and um, and yet he had been educated in the west he had this uh, gone to university in boston and studied there so he knew uh, how to be a western gentleman if he chose to be one mm. um, and it's it's that complete adeptness and proficiency that I wanted to bring across in Wing Zhao, who was essentially working as a butler. But behind that was this amazing education and this amazing will and uh, amazing knowledge and history. Solari, thank you once again for joining us here on Death of the Reader. We will have you back one more time 
on the final episode of this run, All the Tears in China. We cannot wait to talk more about this book, its conclusion, and particularly about the next book, A Testament of Character, which you have just released. Can't wait for that. Thank you very much for having me. Can't wait to come back. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Herds here on your Murder Mystery World Tour, discussing Solari Gentil's All the Tears in China, chapters 15 to 27. This is your moment, Herds. This is the moment in which you are going to tell us exactly what has happened in this crime. Who did it? How done it? Why done it? For your points on the show next week, the floor is yours, sir. (sighs) Who killed Alexandra Romanova? I will tell you, I, I have a solid grasp on the who. I think that there is only one character who is suspicious enough and follows the, like, techniques of a murderer enough that I'm pretty confident. The why, I'm I'm sort of on. The how, mm-hmm. I don't know how much the how matters. That's, that's the thing I'm going to hedge my bets on. I'll let you know, I believe the killer to be a gentleman by the name of Gilbert Carmel. Uh, he is a lawyer. A, law, a lawyer uh, in the he's supposed to be a good friend of Roland Sinclair um, and dare I say would would definitely know that he was coming to Shanghai which is part of my reasoning here um, I think that the all of this communist stuff is very important to like establish the political landscape but I I think that a lot of it is a smokescreen um, I've pretty much thrown out my theory about Nikolai since last time yeah uh, partly just because of how much time we spent with him um, and also how he seems like he's Far too obviously interested. He's far too interested in Edna to, to be the killer. But anyway, I, I think that it is uh, Gilbert Carmel. Uh, the thing that kind of pinged me on him is that he is he's really adamant. And this gets more intense as this part of the novel goes on. I didn't really think about him much because there are so many conversations in which he just says, and then Roland explained everything and Carmel also explained everything and then we move on. But that happened that also happens far too frequently. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's that's true. Like, I think that he's secretly a Nazi. Uh-huh. <laughs> which is the part that I was so are you, confused about. Are you then accusing Wilfred Sinclair of sending his brother to Shanghai to perhaps get murdered for being a communist? No, no. I think that that is a happy coincidence. I think that uh, Gilbert Carmel actually wanted to catch Wolford initially because, as I mentioned th- last week on the show, when he first gets to Shanghai, there's a bunch of guys trying to kidnap him and they speak in German. And the only thing, now that we've had the German doctor and the Nazi wool traders and all of these other German characters, I think this is an exploration of, of their intentions before World War II. Mm-hmm. I think that Carmel is a secret Nazi and he wants to disrupt this wall deal with Japan because as he says once Roland initiates the deal with the, with the Japanese then everyone else is going to be on it and that like trade tie between Australia and Jap- Japan is going to be much stronger so you are <laughs> blaming the sheep yes for the rising sun war plan yes that is I think that Carmel my goodness I, I'm having a hard time justifying that Carmel is a Nazi but I can tell he's working with the with the Germans that is a clear thing to me and so obviously uh Carmel who uh is aware of course of Roland's movements ordered the burning down of Alexei's uh, house, you know, the explosion of his house. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he's dead, mind you. I think he's going to come back later because there wasn't a body. Standard murder mystery play. Yeah, that's that's my feeling there. But yeah, I think that when we get to the end of it, uh, Carmel's going to turn out to be a Nazi 
and that this is all to like prevent a, an Australian-Japan alliance. I mean, as I was saying last week on the show, Herds, there was really just no limit to the horizon of how far you could take this theory. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you've gotten pretty close to what many people would have considered the limit. Bringing a theory up yeah. as enormously scaled as this is kind of crazy, but also fabulously the opportunity that a book with a character like Sinclair affords you. Like, just saying yeah. that your detective just happens to be one of the wealthiest wool traders in Australia and that that's going to scale up. I can neither confirm nor deny your theory, Herds, but i got to let you know I, I absolutely love it. <laughs> I have to assume I'm close, and if I'm not close, then Solari, come over here. We have to, I have a concept for a book that we should write. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I have to assume that's where it's going. Like It's set in Shanghai, which is a global boiling pot. We've talked about so many different um, of, of these like huge concepts, like the Hitler Youth and World War II is being foreshadowed. Like, I, I have to assume that that's where this is leading. It is a little weird. Like, I back your theory in its broad sense and the implications, but it does make the entire ordeal seem very impersonal, which is interesting considering how direct and almost intimate the setup with Alexandra Romanova was. I think that that only exacerbates the tragedy of the death of this Russian princess, um, I, I know that we haven't had it like officially confirmed at this point in the story. I'm not saying that, but we literally had the phonograph play out and somebody in the back said, oh, your majesty, that might have been uh, Alexei. That might have been him. Why, why, if it was him, would they be, you know, using titles like your majesty if they're trying to, you know, stay low? That's a little strange. Because someone's a dummy. Someone said something bad at the wrong time uh, is, is the answer to that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it, it is just going to be that uh, victim by association. I think that that's where this is going. Like, in the same way that Roland Sinclair is victim by association to Egon Kitsch, right? Mm. Uh, I think that that's going to play into the tragedy of her death, that she, you know, she is the missing Russian princess. And that's how Slary Gentil is actually going to tie things into the real world, that, like, we believe that she had died, but we're not really sure of the circumstances, that sort of thing. It, it, it makes it sound very spy novel, Herds. It makes it sound very distinctly yeah. anti-Van Dyne. I mean, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm always okay with, with busting Van Dyne open. But, you know, to to bust out the 13 secret societies, mafias and all, have no place in a detective yep. story, and just throwing that out the window with just the entire Nazi political strategy, that is a bold play, sir. That is a bold, bold play. I think that that's kind of how things are going to wrap around. Uh, I think that, that Alistair being the... Is he American? Is he Australian? I don't actually, it doesn't matter. He's, you know, the Western spy. Shh. It doesn't, look, the details don't matter in a murder mystery story. No, absolutely not. They wouldn't dare do uh, such a thing. <laughs> shh, shh. But I, I think that uh, giving Alistair, you know, a place in the story that is subtle, yet uh, foreshadowing of, of events later, when Roland realizes, ah, oh, I see that Carmel was a Nazi spy all along. Mm-hmm. I think that would be really perfect. Like, there are so many characters that are sketchy or cagey or, like, a little bit dangerous, especially the gang. But I think that in order to find a culprit that fits with this novel, we have to go for something larger scale. And Nazi Germany preventing an alliance between Australia and Japan is the only thing I can think of. The question I then have, Herds, is you said that you thought this was going to follow Knox and Chandler of our two rule sets. Okay. I, what have I I won't, I won't go down Knox because I think it's it's 
plausible and doesn't really, you know, get close enough to any of those. The curious one I have is the ninth Chandler rule, that the novel must punish the criminal in one way or another, and not necessarily by operation of the law. Yeah. If you are accusing just Nazis collective of being responsible for this crime, how do we satisfy oh. the ninth rule? I mean, they get punished in World War II. I don't know if you've read history book. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I, I think that in this in this circumstance that the murderer, like that's the larger political landscape, but the murderer here is going to be Carmel. Uh-huh. And I think that he will get his okay. comeuppance okay. because there's a, dis- there's a distinction here between the broader organization that is that is literally like millions of people and one individual doing a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? And I think that uh, Carmel and his like Nazi goons, you know, the guys who tried to kidnap uh, Roland Sinclair at the beginning of the story. We'll get their comeuppance possibly in a hammy fight scene Mm -hmm. where we realize that Randolph was really a good guy all along. Um, But (laughs) I don't think, (laughs) I I don't think that we are going to literally punish all of Nazi Germany in this story, especially because that would be very reductive and against the story that has been laid down before this. Herds, I think you have done an excellent job. I'm very excited to see this come around (laughs) next week. Oh, what a pleasure uh, it has been watching you solve this story. I, it's crazy. This entire novel is amazing. I've loved it. It is it is absolutely insane. I don't think I've I've ever felt so out of scale with a novel and so satisfied yeah. at being as such. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to the finale. I'm going to read it right after this ends. So <laughs> let's see how we go. Let's see how many points I get, if any. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. We will be discussing the final chapters to the very end of All the Tears in China next week on the show. Herds. Flex. I wish you good rest. I hope that you don't have <laughs> sleepless nights fretting about the answers here. I, I definitely will. I definitely will. <laughs> Spo- spoiler alert. <laughs> we will see you then. You're listening to 2SER.